Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Adeliza of Louvain. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the Queen and Prince Consort of England, from Elswith to Prince Philip. And as you've heard today, we are reviewing, we think, Adeliza of Louvain. What was the question mark there? Uh, just about pronunciation, whether it's Adeliza or Adeliza. In my head, mm. I've been saying Adeliza all week, but I'm now thinking it's probably Eza. Is it possible to say that without going, Eliza? <laughs> I've been um, doing um, the latest Hilary Mantle book, mm. and Eliza is what they call Elizabeth. Little um, Rex fact nugget there for you. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, where we are Rex Factor Pod. Like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page and email us at rexfactorpodcast at hotmail dot com. Now, we're a free podcast, but if you'd like to hear more of us and you can donate monthly, join the Privy Council and get some bonus content and help us keep on podcasting. Keep on podding, baby. Biography. So, Adelita of Louvain was born, we don't know when. Yep. Back to the good old question marks about this sort of thing. She was referred to as a puella at the time of her marriage in 1121, which suggests that she was quite young, a girl. Now, the canonical age of marriage at this time was 12 years old. So oh, she, my life. So she could have been born as late as 1109, but the consensus seems to be about 1103, which would make her about 18 when she got married. That's helpful. I mean, mm. lucky, isn't it? Uh, she was the daughter of Godfrey, the Count of Louvain, and Ida, or Ida, of Namur. Mm, that was as close to being an Edith, but that's that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Is actually that where was it? Edith of where? Uh, Namur, N A M U R. Is that Spain? It sounds quite exotic, quite Spanish or Middle Eastern. Um, it's Belgium. All right. Now, Adelisa's name is rather notable, not least because it isn't Matilda. Yeah. Right. Well, because this means she is the only one of the Anglo-Norman consorts not to be called Matilda. Really? Yeah. So when does that period end? We've got uh, Matilda... We've got one more. One more to come, and then that's it for Matildas. Perhaps makes it a little bit easier for you. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But not for the English chroniclers, it would appear, because uh, there are quite a wide variety of spellings recorded by the chroniclers suggested that they were co- struggling to come to terms with this strange and bizarre name that didn't start with an M. <laughs> so we get Adeliza, Adelicia, Adela, Athelice, Alice, all sorts of spellings and variations on it. Which is odd, isn't it? Because there's only a few people at the time, comparatively speaking, who actually write. So they could have come to a <laughs> consensus. Or she could have said, look, guys, my name is Edith. Just get it right. <laughs> yeah. Maybe she tried and they were like, look, that, that mm. is just a noise. We can't. <laughs> uh, they were rather more confident, however, when it came to her appearance. Chroniclers were overflowing with compliments for Adeliza. Mm. Adeliza. She was known as the Fair Maid of Brabant, 
again, where she's from, the duchy, uh, with John of Worcester describing her as a young woman of great beauty and modesty, while uh, Henry of Huntington really went to town on his description. <laughs> oh, Queen of the English, Adeliza, the very muse who prepares to call to mind your graces is frozen in wonder. What to you, most beautiful one, is a crown? What to you are jewels? A jewel grows pale on you, and a crown does not shine. Put adornment aside, for nature provides your adornment, and a fortunate beauty cannot be improved. Well... So in terms of some backgroundy stuff, Adeliza, as I said, is from Louvain, which is modern-day uh, Leuven, that might be pronounced, in uh, Belgium. Mm-hmm. Uh, so her native language is Flemish, but she also seems to have understood French, so probably had some form of formal education. Her mm. father, Godfrey, was a powerful ruler of modern-day sort of modern day Belgium and eastern France. Right. Uh, and he has quite an impressive array of titles. He's the Duke of Lower Lotharingia, the Landgrave of Brabant, the Marquess of Antwerp, and the Count of Brussels, and the Count of Louvain. Cool. That is, I mean, that's an ultimate European there, isn't he? <laughs> he is indeed. He was known as the Warlord of Louvain, the Great, and somewhat less dramatically, the Bearded. <laughs> Which, to be honest, isn't a great descriptor, is it? In, I imagine it, <laughs> no. it's one of many. Indeed. Uh, we know very little of Adeliza's upbringing, but as her father was a vassal of the Holy Roman Emperor Heinrich V, she probably came to the imperial court uh, at Arschen in Germany in 1118 when Godfrey and Heinrich resolved a long-running dispute uh, between the two of them. And mm. it was at this point that she seems to have attracted the attention of King Henry I of England. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Henry is uh, one of the sons of William the Conqueror. He'd been King of England since 1100, but he's back in the marriage market after his first consort, Matilda of Scotland, that we did last time, died in 1118. Okay, so he's, he's, he's been married 18 years, or thereabouts. Indeed, yeah. Uh, now, England already had a close relationship with the Holy Roman Empire, as Henry's daughter, Matilda, had married the emperor a few oh, years earlier. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, and in terms of strategic benefits, Godfrey's uh, various dominions are quite helpfully situated to assist Henry in his ongoing conflict with his nephew, William Cleto. So mm. this is the son of Robert Curto's, Henry's older brother, and a, a potential rival for the succession. Right. Okay, because, yeah, it's northern France, isn't it? Right. And from a personal perspective, we should also remember that Henry is the man with over 20 illegitimate children, so reports of an incredibly beautiful woman who is on the marriage market were probably going to attract his attention. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So negotiations seem to have started in uh, eleven, about 1119, but they were given a new urgency in late November of 1120 with the White Ship disaster. Yes. So this saw the death of Henry's only legitimate son, William Adelan. Mm. And the next most senior male in the Anglo-Norman dynasty is William Cleto, whose ambitions Henry spent the last decade trying to thwart. Oh, right. So it wasn't Stephen at all. I thought it was Stephen, but Henry would rather Matilda. But actually, Stephen's way off. Well, so at this point... um, So initially, of course, it's William Adelan, Henry's legitimate son. Mm. But then when... He dies, and there's lots of Normans who are probably looking to Cleto anyway, but certainly now William Cleto has got a very good opportunity, but Henry wants to avoid this as much as possible. Mm. 
So Henry, who has already been negotiating for a potential marriage, now is suddenly in desperate need of an heir. Mm. Mm. So negotiations speed along rather quickly at this point. Henry quickly agrees to the betrothal, waives the need for a dowry, but promises Adeliza a lavish dower in return. So she's not bringing him any money, and he's going to give her lots in return. On the 6th of January, 1121, so just a couple of, well, not even two months after the White Ship disaster, Henry announces to the council his intention to marry. Mm -hmm. Adeliza comes to England and is escorted from Dover to Windsor Castle, where she will marry Henry I of England on the 29th of January. Okay. Uh, Any um, record of her thoughts on this, or not at all important? Is she sort of happy with that match? It's quite a good deal isn't it a king of england exactly it's pretty prestigious from her perspective um yeah she's she's not you know the daughter of the king of france or something like that she's you know her father's a powerful man but equally becoming queen of england is definitely a step up right okay good now things don't quite go to plan when it comes to the wedding thankfully it's not the sort of thing we saw with matilda of scotland last time where there was a question over her legitimacy in marrying but uh it's a bit of a uh, because she was uh, considered a nun by Anselm. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the old auntie helmet. For Adeliza, the problem comes in terms of a bit of a scrap between the bishops. Yeah, oh, always, yeah. The Archbishop of Canterbury was a chap called Ralph de Cure, uh, and he was quite old and unwell, so not able to perform the ceremony. Mm. So instead, Roger of Salisbury, um, who has jurisdiction over Windsor, was expected to take his place. Unfortunately, Ralph is still determined to keep control of the whole thing and insisted on picking his deputy instead of Roger. Right. And the two of them can't agree, and it gets so heated that they actually have to call an ecclesiastical council to rule over who gets to do the wedding ceremony. How long is this all taking? Uh, Well, presumably it's just a couple of days or so because it's all moving along quite quickly for the marriage. Um, and eventually the council rules that whenever the king and queen are in England, they are to be considered parishioners of the Archbishop of Canterbury. Mm. And thus Ralph gets his way and Roger of Salisbury doesn't get to do the wedding. Oh, he must be gutted. He is, but thankfully Henry is sensitive to all of this. So to compensate Roger for this disappointment, he gets him to preside over Adelisa's coronation, which takes place the day after the wedding. Oh, that's clever. But he definitely mm. feels that that's second best, doesn't he? He does, but he wants to make sure that he gets his moment, so he holds the service very early in the day, hoping that the elderly Ralph will sleep in and miss it. (laughs) Does he? Unfortunately not, because halfway through the ceremony, Ralph comes tottering in, Mm. sees that Henry is wearing his crown, and thus fearing someone has impinged on Canterbury's prerogative of crowning the monarch, gets very, very upset, insists on removing the crown, before then immediately putting it back on Henry's head himself. God, they're such children, aren't they? He then went on to crown and consecrate Adeliza, uh, but then, because he's old and doddery, he gets a bit tired, so he does actually have to hand over to Roger anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Anyway, all that's over, so Adeliza is now thus the Queen of England. Okay, happy days. Indeed. Now, Henry and Matilda of Scotland had spent quite a lot of their time apart, but because the necessity of producing an heir is so urgent, Adeliza is pretty much a constant travelling companion for Henry. She follows him all across England, uh, all across Normandy. They're always together and presumably always trying to produce an heir. Yeah, there's only one, one, one purpose to that marriage, isn't there? 
There's quite a stark age gap between the two of them. She's about 18 and he's about 53 at the oh, time God, which they oh, get God. married. God. They do seem to have got on quite well. She makes an effort to learn about his interests. So uh, one such example was that she commissions a translation of a treatise on animals, which complements Henry's interests in the exotic, because he has a uh, England's first menagerie. Oh, of course he does, yeah. Mm. So she commissions this lovely little book telling him what all the animals are. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. So what is it, like a, a Wikipedia of animals, a, a little encyclopedia of all the known animals in the world at the time? Yeah, something like that. Oh, that's nice. I mean, of all hmm. of all of the things so far in this series, that is the best job. Because <laughs> all the writings have been quite dull, uh, but this one's hmm. right up there. I'd I'd read that now. Well, we'll talk about it in subjectivity. You might not feel quite so uh, confident in that assertion when you hear a little bit more about its nature, but uh, hold that thought for now. <laughs> Uh, so Henry's very gr- generous to her in return, grants her extensive lands that have been part of Matilda of Scotland's holding, so Waltham which, uh, in Essex. Oh, Waltham uh, Abbey. Queen- Waltham Abbey, indeed. Uh, Queen Hythe in London, as well as various estates in Essex, Hertfordshire, uh, Southwest, all over the country, really. Mm. And she's also granted lots of exemptions from taxation and probably doesn't actually have to pay particularly revenues on all of her properties. I'm surprised she paid any anyway. Well, indeed, but either way, by the end of all of this, she's a very wealthy woman. Mm. Mm-hmm. Wealthy, but not powerful. Oh? Because unlike Matilda, she has virtually no uh, role at all in the governance of the country. I can imagine, though, from Henry's point of view, he um, he's had 18 years with uh, Matilda, who is incredibly competent, and then... In rocks an 18-year-old girl who, however competent she is, he would definitely think she wasn't and any learning mistakes that she might make would just completely, to him, justify his decision to keep her well away. And also, because she has to be with Henry all the time because they're trying to produce an heir, she's obviously not got an opportunity to be regent because if Henry's not there, she's not there either. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. She does follow Matilda's lead as a cultural patron. She helps to promote the interest of some of her sort of Lotharingian friends and relations. But mm. as we're saying, her primary purpose is to produce an heir. But unfortunately for Adeliza, by 1125, it still hasn't happened. And at all? Any girls? No, nothing at all. No pregnancies, nothing. Oh, man. And given that Henry has a lot of children, over 20 illegitimate children sired by Henry. Mm, It's probably pressure, poor girl. But the assumption is that the problem is lying with Adeliza rather than Henry. Yeah. Uh, And unsurprisingly, this seems to be playing on her mind. Uh, We have a letter to her from Hildebert of Lavadan, who's Mm. the Archbishop of Tours, which does seem to be addressing her concerns about not producing any children. Yeah. So Hildebert says... Perhaps the Lord has closed up your womb so that you might adopt immortal offspring. It is more blessed to be fertile in the spirit than the flesh. Oh, God, that's what you want. When you're you're that distressed, you have a bishop putting his oar in and saying, oh, it's all right, have some pretend children. What does he mean? He seems to be hinting perhaps at sort of the possibility of pursuing a line in holy chastity, so kind of like the retrospective portrayal of Edward the Confessor interpreting childlessness as a sign of being holy right. and chaste. Uh, but as you say, probably not of great comfort to Adeliza. No. And it's certainly not of comfort to Henry I, for whom the lack of an heir is going to necessitate Plan B. 
Indeed, William of Malmesbury records that fearing that his queen should be perpetually childless, with well-founded anxiety, he turned his thoughts to a successor to the kingdom. Okay, couple of questions. Why did he hate the, this Cato chap so much? Cleto. Cleto, yeah. Uh, because uh, Robert Curto's his older brother, who uh, this is the one who twice fails to become king and was mm. busy mates with Edgar the Etheling. Yeah. Um, Henry's got him locked up after they were at war together. So Cleto is Robert's son, and Henry is determined on his own son becoming Duke of Normandy, becoming King of England. Cleto is working with the King of France against Henry, so he's kind of been really Henry's enemy mm. all the time that he's been a sort of functioning adult. It's just chap. interesting then that, it, that it's, it, it's not about following the rules so specifically. It really is about just having the person you want to succeed you because surely he just he should think well the you know he's appointed by god this is the next person in line so be it well yeah i mean henry does seem because at this point we've um we talked i can remember when we talked about this in one of the episodes but that primogeniture hasn't really entirely set in oh. at this stage yet but henry does seem to be a bit more fixated on it than others have so he was desperate obviously for his own son to be king mm. but yes if william cleto had been um, you know, sucking up to Henry, best mates with him, following him around and being really great, then probably Henry wouldn't have been so desperately traumatised. Mm. Well, obviously he'd been traumatised to lose his son, but he would have accepted Cleto. Mm. But the problem is that Cleto has been his enemy for 10 years, so the idea that he is going to lose his son and then, as a consequence, give the throne to his enemy. I see. Um, so to avoid Cleto, Henry does then start bestowing honours and favours on other uh, male relations. So this is where Stephen of Blois comes in. So this is the son of one of Henry's sisters, so a cousin of William Cleto. Right. Mm. So it's a suggestion that perhaps Henry is considering that someone like Stephen would be a better alternative if he doesn't produce his own heir. But Stephen is, then has uh, just as much claim to the throne as Cleto, apart from the fact that he's descended from a woman. Uh, yes. Okay. And also, I think that Cleto is... I think Curtos is the older brother as well, so mm. in primogeniture terms, Cleto is the senior okay. fellow. However, a more permanent solution does come in 1125 when the Holy Roman Emperor dies. Okay. So as I said, Henry didn't have a legitimate surviving son, but he does have a daughter, mm. Matilda. Now, while she was Holy Roman Emperor, she couldn't really figure as part of Henry's plans for the succession because she was, you know, otherwise engaged. Mm. But the death of her husband, and without any children, changes everything. So Henry wastes no time, recalls her to England, and at the Christmas court of 1126, Henry declares Matilda as his heir, and all the lords and bishops of the country swear an oath recognising her as such. Job done. Now, it's probably not a very easy situation for Adeliza, who is witness to this uh, ceremony and all of this. It's still conditional on the possibility of her producing a son, who would be senior to Matilda if that did come about. Mm. Um, and it's interesting that she was granted revenues from Shropshire and Rutland, and the lords also swore an oath to regard these always as belonging to Adeliza. So it suggests that perhaps Henry's trying to compensate her for the potential humiliation of the ceremony. Because the elephant in the room, obviously, is her infertility. Henry had married her to produce sons, and now he's taking the unprecedented step of acknowledging his daughter as heir five years into the marriage. The situation may have been eased for Adeliza by the fact that she seems to have been friends with Matilda. Oh, nice. 
because they're of a similar age to each other and in fact Matilda is actually slightly older than her stepmother oh gosh, that's so awkward isn't it uh, they'd both grown up at the imperial court in Germany because obviously Matilda was the empress Mm. And indeed, Matilda's first act as empress had been to intercede on behalf of Adelisa's father in a dispute with the emperor. Okay, that's nice. Yeah, so they may well have got to know each other when Adelisa came to the imperial court in 1118. It's even possible that Matilda might have played a role in arranging the marriage between Henry and Adelisa. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, that would be horrible for her, obviously. (laughs) Yeah, quite weird. So, your mother's dead. Um, Any hotties at court? (laughs) (laughs) But she does still uh, continue to be Henry's constant companion. They probably don't give up on the idea of having heirs. Um, So, it's only in 1133 when uh, he goes off to Normandy to deal with a conflict between Matilda and her new husband, Geoffrey of Anjou. And uh, Adelita doesn't go with him at this point. So, perhaps at this stage they have given up on the hope of producing an heir. So he goes to Normandy, but he doesn't take Adelisa with him. Oh, sad face. Right. Um, Henry's delighted when Matilda gives birth to his first grandson, who's the future Henry II. Mm. Stays at her bedside when she nearly dies, giving birth to a second son. And he then stays a while in Normandy to rejoice in his grandsons. Lovely for him, of course, but perhaps a little bit galling for Adelisa, who's still stuck in England while Henry's spending time with his other family. And, of course, these grandsons are taking the position her son should have had. Yeah, she must just feel like an adornment now. And she's not to see Henry ever again, because in 1135, still in Normandy, he dies after a surfeit of lamprey. Oh, yes, of course he does. The old revenge of the shellfish. Horrible teeth. So she wasn't present at his deathbed, uh, but she is there for his funeral at Reading Abbey the following year. Um, As dowager, there's a tradition that she went into a year of mourning at Fugleston St. Peter. Mm, Where's that? Uh, It's near Wilton. Um, So some historians suspect that she might actually just have gone to Wilton. If she was was going somewhere, she might as well go to the Big Abbey rather than... However, her role in national affairs is not yet over. Uh Uh-huh. Despite all of the oaths, Matilda's absence in Normandy provided the opportunity needed for her cousin Stephen to steal the throne. Yeah. Now, initially, Matilda's not able to do anything about this, but by 1139, she's ready to take the fight back to Stephen, and Adelisa gave her refuge in her castle at Arundel. Oh, right. Because that was hers, was it? Was it gifted to her by Henry? Yeah, this is one of uh, Adelisa's castles. Um, so Matilda's able to go there um, and get sanctuary, and then is able to join up with her supporters in Bristol, and the conflict known as the Anarchy begins. Brilliant. Okay, so she was really involved in it then. Early on she was, yeah. And she's also not finished in matters of the heart. Mm -hmm. Timings are unclear, but at some point around 1138, 1139, she marries for the second time. Um, Is this uh, scandal bell worthy? Can 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 the Queen Mother do that? Uh, well, she's not the Queen Mother, of course. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> That's the whole problem. Yeah, so it's probably less controversial, actually, for a non-Queen Mother dowager to remarry than uh, a Queen Mother. Uh, mm-hmm. Her new husband is a chap called William Daubeny. Um He's the son of Henry I's butler, which isn't a domestic servant. It's actually an important oh, right. role at court. But Okay. Oh, don't say they have kids. Uh, they do have <gasps> kids. No! So after... All those years of nothing with Henry gets married to William. Oh, long come the children. Oh, 
That's interesting. I mean, I don't know what the... Um... So maybe, uh, you know, maybe Henry later on in life... Too much horse riding. Too much horse riding earlier on. Maybe he'd uh, run out of juice. Mm. Mm. Or perhaps it was just one of those things, and for whatever reason, they just it just didn't happen between Henry and Adelisa, despite the fact that, as it turns out, they were both fertile. How many lives could have been saved? Um, but still... It's nice for Adelisa, and it does potentially seem to be a love match. They might have known each other beforehand, mm. but they do seem to have been quite happy together. So she does get a bit of a happy ending yeah. after all um, this. How does this affect uh, scoring if she's not actually Queen Mother during this time, though? Uh, she doesn't get any points for these children with William because they're not the king's but children. Or any of her actions after this time, either. Um, well, I think, you know, we'd... Um, I think with the kings, we've given credit for stuff they do as prince and... We've given stuff for Queen Mother, even though she's no longer the Queen Mother. I guess she's still a sort of. Um, you're right. Sorry, I meant yeah, because they were the um, objective ones that we gave them a series of complicated points for, wasn't it? Because of the amount of kids they had and outlived, and then yeah, time alive afterwards. Yeah, so she doesn't get any credit for children by someone who isn't the mm. king, but she can get credit for good stuff that okay. she does afterwards. Uh, now, William Daubeny is actually quite a prominent supporter of Stephen. No way. So Adelita doesn't play any further role in the anarchy. The Arundel episode is her only foray. Was she married at that point to Daubeny? It's it's not entirely clear if she's married to him before and thus is able to help Matilda despite this or if it comes afterwards and perhaps Stephen might have encouraged the match as a way to neutralise her. We don't know exactly which way Mm. round it is. Uh, so after this, she fades somewhat into obscurity. There's a suggestion that in 1148, she retires to Brabant to become a Benedictine nun at Aflgem. All right. So this involves her retiring from her family as well, because they're all still alive at this point. So some historians think that probably she doesn't retire, but it might be that she goes to visit. And it's while she's visiting in 1151 that she dies, sadly. Oh, no, but she's, uh, she's about 50 then. Yeah, 48, not quite 50. Yeah, that's not bad, is it? It's not bad. It's not great. Um, She's probably there to visit her brother, who'd become a monk uh, in 1149 at the Abbey. So maybe that might be why there's this sort of story about her retiring there. She probably just went to visit, happened to get ill whilst there and die. And then it becomes this whole thing that she retired to the monastery. Right. Now, such is her diminished status in England that the only record we have of her death comes from the annals of the monastery. So there's no mention of it in England at all. Oh, right. Because she's not, because she's the, I suppose, because the anarchy is going on, there's just no space for that sort of stuff to be recorded. Yeah, and obviously, there's also the fact that she isn't a queen mother, she doesn't have any children who are players in all of this affair, so her relevance kind of slips away rather as time goes yeah. on. Yeah. We're not even entirely sure where she was buried. Aflagem, the monastery, recorded that she was buried there alongside her father. But there are also accounts of her being buried at Reading next to Henry I. Oh, right. So perhaps it might be that her heart and viscera are buried at Aflagem, but her body was taken back to Reading. So maybe they both get a bit of her. Mm. But we're not 100% sure. Mm, okay. Not a split. Possible and actually, actually possible a split body. Indeed. Mm. <laughs> bit of a split. A literal physical split between the two mm. okay nasty anyway that is the life and consortship of uh, Adeliza of Adeliza of Levan let's see how she does when we review her Battleliness
As we said, she does play an important role at the start of the anarchy with her actions at Arendelle. Yeah, I mean, that's quite... So far, the the actual most sort of traditional battliness we've had from these Norman lot. Well, I mean, Matilda of Flanders did uh, commission a warship, which she uh, sailed oh, into yeah. harbour for William the Conqueror. But yeah, Matilda yeah. of Scotland didn't get involved in any sort of military battle affairs. Um, so, as we said, Stephen took the throne in 1135, and uh, the Empress Matilda was stuck in Normandy, unable to challenge him until 1139, and that's the point at which she decides to return to England. Now, Stephen knew that Matilda was coming, and he's got control of all the major ports, so they're on high alert for her arrival. But Matilda surprises him by going to Arundel. So this is on the sea, but it doesn't have a proper port, and its sort of river access is actually inaccessible by larger ships. It's a perfect way for her to sort of secrete herself into the country while Stephen isn't really looking. Yeah, it's cool. It's mm. This is movie stuff again. The castle itself is sort of near impregnable, and crucially, of course, it's owned by Adeliza. Mm. Yeah. Now, as you said, Adelise and Matilda do seem potentially to have got on with each other. They have quite a lot in common. As well as the time that they both spent in Germany, uh, Matilda stayed with Adelisa on her return to England in 1126, and also for a time when Matilda was estranged from Geoffrey of Anjou. She came to stay at the royal household in England again. Oh, right. Yeah. And they do maintain contact after Henry's death in 1135. Um, also, Stephen's recently deprived... Uh, Adelisa of some of her dower land so she's not particularly well disposed towards him at this time mm. Mm. and it's also quite a canny move because it's entirely appropriate for Adelisa to provide shelter to her stepdaughter and for Stephen who is this sort of very chivalric and overly kind individual it's quite problematic to be put in a position where he's got to attack the old king's widow the old king's daughter and of course the old king's heir doesn't do great things for his uh, legitimacy, does it? Yeah, so he's got to step quite carefully. Uh, according to Gervais of Canterbury, Adelisa tells Stephen that Matilda had been omitted not as his enemy, but as her stepdaughter and friend who'd sought her hospitality. Which respect for the memory of her late royal lord King Henry forbade her to refuse, and these considerations would compel her to protect her imperial guest while she remained beneath the shelter of her roof. If he came in hostile array against her castle of Arundel, with intent to make Maud his prisoner, she must frankly say she was resolved to defend her to the last extremity, not only because she was the daughter of her late dear Lord King Henry, but as the widow of the Emperor Henry and her guest. Um, and Adelisa's provision of refuge to Matilda is of great import for her ability to gain a foothold in England. Stephen is ultimately persuaded to give her safe passage to Bristol, mm. and because of this, Matilda is able to build her cause, and she actually comes agonisingly close to being crowned England's first Queen Regnant just two years later. Oh, I know. It was. I wish she were. So, very helpful uh, for Adelisa to have helped her into the country. If Matilda hadn't had Arundel, it would have been very difficult for her to have got started. Hmm. Downside is that these events can also be interpreted rather less heroically on Adelisa's part. How? Uh, Robert of Torini claimed that it was actually her husband, William, who invited Matilda to Arundel and not Adelisa. Mm, that does stack up, doesn't it? Well, it's a bit surprising because William was uh, an adamant, was a strong oh, supporter Stephen, of Stephen. Yeah. Um, so perhaps if that did happen, maybe William and Adeliza were hoping to secure greater influence by bringing about some form of accord 
between Stephen and Matilda rather than actually promoting her cause against him. Or imprison her. Or imprison her, indeed. Um, Arundel doesn't seem to have been fortified ahead of Matilda's visit, which suggests that it's something of a surprise to, uh, to Adeliza as well as to Stephen. So might not have been entirely welcome if she doesn't know that she's coming. Mm-hmm. And William of Malmesbury complained that Adeliza underestimated the political significance of receiving Matilda and thereafter sought to win back Stephen's favour. And indeed, she doesn't seem to play any further role in the anarchy, nor to have had any further dealings of note with Matilda. So perhaps the support she does provide is a bit more limited and grudging in nature, rather than this sort of heroic defiance of Stephen. Yeah, okay. So, aside from that one thing, which she Mm. may or may not have done... Yes. ...and its importance... Well, I suppose it's actually... She does at least arrive. You know, that is the, the starting gun. But, as you say, the question is, to what is it a deliberate thing on Adelisa's part to support her, or is it not? Well, how cunning do we think Adelisa is? Because we know for sure that Matilda is. Yes. And could it be that if they weren't prepared, Matilda, using her friendship for Adeliza, with Adeliza, could have mm. just gone, oh, hello, just, just popping in. Oh, is there trouble? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know. <laughs> In which case, it's just more Matilda points and Adeliza is still the young, uh, naive princess. Well, I mean, she's not young and naive anymore, so by 11.39 this is... Oh, right, yeah, she's quite a bit older. Um, But yeah, it might well be that Matilda takes the calculated risk that if she asked Adeliza, Adeliza might say no, but if she turns up, she's not going to betray her. Yeah, she's got some get-outs. But equally, maybe that's plausible deniability rather than genuine naivety. So it's what I mean is all the time it's uh, watering down a bit, isn't it? Mm. And I don't have anything else for battliness to go on here. But it is, it is key to the plot. I'd like to give her full credit for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and give it a f- three and a half. Yeah, I think I'm going to give it a three. It's it's something, mm. and it's good, but we could do with other things. If she'd had more of a role thereafter in the anarchy, if she'd been supportive to Matilda in other ways after this, then yeah. it would be a great stepping stone towards something more. But as it is, it's it's a one-off, and then nothing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well. Yeah, three and a half from you, uh, three from me, so that's six and a half for battliness. Scandal. Well, we're back to Arundel again. Um, Mm -hmm. William of Malmesbury goes rather further than describing Adeliza's support as grudging. He accuses her of full-on betraying Matilda. Oh, right, okay. Uh, So he claims Adeliza had pledged to support Matilda while she was in Normandy, but once she's actually there at Arundel, Adeliza tells Stephen she wasn't supporting Matilda's cause, tells him she hasn't invited her, and then hands Matilda over to Stephen rather than face a siege. So he bemoans that with a woman's fickleness, in despite of the undertaking she had given via the many messengers she had sent to Normandy, she broke the faith she had sworn. So he thinks she's motivated more by fear of losing rank and status than she is by supporting Matilda. There's nothing to suggest that, is there? Um, well, I mean, he's he's technically going on the fact that Matilda does go into Stephen's, not custody, but she leaves the castle, but he, she is then given safe conduct to Bristol. So it's not that Adeliza hands her over in chains, 
it's rather that Adelise has helped to negotiate an exit for Matilda. Okay. So she doesn't continue to drive refuge, but equally she's not just handed her to Stephen and said, right, do what you will. Yeah, it could be um, interpreted either way, depending what side you're on. Yeah, and it's possible that William was seeking to deflect criticism from his patron, Robert of Gloucester, who's Matilda's half-brother, because he'd landed with her in Arundel, but he'd then made his own way to Bristol uh, during Mm. the night, leaving Matilda there. So apparently there might have been some people criticising him for abandoning her. And again, he hadn't abandoned her, it was all part of the plan, but William may be thinking, well, if I just blame it all on Adeliza rather than Robert, then... Yeah, yeah, easy, yeah. And but that's all I've got, unfortunately, for Scandal, a suggestion of betrayal for Matilda, but otherwise... Oh, I was holding back, waiting for you to get going on. Um... Oh, well, that's a shame. I've, I've used it all up on treachery. Well, I don't think there really was. No, I don't think it was either, really. Oh, gosh. One. I'm not even sure I'd give that. To be honest, I don't think I don't think she did betray Matilda. Yeah, that's true. <sighs> yeah, no, there's nothing there. There's nothing there, is there? Zero for me. That is a zero for scandal. That's the first uh, zero that we've had for one of the Anglo-Norman consorts in any of the categories. Rex fact. <laughs> Subjectivity. Well, she does have a bit more to go on here, thankfully. Phew. She continues Matilda of Scotland's legacy as a patron of poets and uh, musicians. Thanks to her, Henry's court continues to be noted as uh, being at the forefront of the 12th century Renaissance. Uh, And indeed, Adelita herself is noted for her skills in needlework. Oh, yes! Before coming to England, she embroidered a beautiful standard in silk and gold for her father to wear uh, to bear in his campaigns, and it became famous throughout Christendom, was captured by her father's enemies in 1129, and then placed as a trophy in the cathedral at Liège, and it was then carried through the streets on regation days for centuries until the church is destroyed during the French Revolution. Oh, OK, so it was actually pretty good. Um, in England, though, her most notable commission as queen was for Philippe de Tarn to translate the ancient Christian text, the Bestiary, which is the book about animals. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, you said that this is the first one that you would very happily sit down and read. Yeah. Um, I should warn you that it is done in the form of a poem. Uh... And there was a reference to how most of it is in uh, hexasyllabic verse, but the last 300 lines are in octosyllabic. And um, that, that did make me think that when you say most is done one way, but the last 300 lines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. Um, can, practical question at this point. Yes. Is there such a thing as prose in this time? Because everything is poems. No, William of Malmesbury isn't writing poetry, so yeah, no, it can be done. But I mean, it's um, that's sort of like a history. Yeah. I don't know. I think I think there's a there's a a definite push for things to be in poetry when they definitely don't need to be. Mm. Something you might have enjoyed in the book, though, it's one of just two works from medieval England which states the legend that crocodiles shed tears when they eat humans. Oh, that's interesting. Rex fact. Which is crocodile where tears, we get yeah. the phrase crocodile tears from, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Also significant is that there's a new fashion at the time for books being written in the French vernacular, i.e. Oh, in French. Oh, oh, <laughs> And uh, Philippe is the first known Anglo-Norman poet to write in French rather than Latin. 
Right. That's okay, good. I mean, easier for me. I stand more of a chance to read it. Hmm. Which, I mean, it sort of seems like a fairly standard thing, and yet at the same time, it's this bizarre thing. You think that, you know, it's quite a long time since the Romans, and here we are saying in, you know, 1100-odd, this is the first French person to write a poem in French. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Along these lines, uh, Adelisa also commissions a troubadour, David the Scot, to write a history of Henry's reign. Have we come across him before? Uh, We've not, no. Okay. Uh, So this is a a history book, but it's not history in the mould of William of Malmesbury. It's in French again, and it's set to music as a metrical chanson. So it's it's another poem? It's another poem, a musical poem. Right. Don't tell me you got some, have you? Uh, so this would be the first history written in French rather than Latin again, but sadly, no copies survive. Oh, dear. Oh, dear, oh, dear. And it's a shame, because Adelita herself provided David the Scot with uh, some of the materials or the, the stories for him to, to put in there. So she obviously uh, had a strong role. I'd, I'd love that. If that were released today, it'd be David of Scotland, feet Adeliza. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's also unfortunate for her that we sort of said about how she fades into obscurity and how, you know, the likes of Emma of Normandy that ensure their place in history by writing the history. Yeah, um, true. I guess a secondary part of that is you've got to make sure that enough people write it down. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she's also a very pious woman, you'll be glad to know. Yeah, lovely. Friends with numerous churchmen who thought very highly of her. It's likely that she commissioned the Shaftesbury Psalter, it's the earliest example of a religious book being commissioned by a woman. Oh, right. Now, that's a bit more Rex Facti. Uh, indeed, it contains coloured illustrations of a noblewoman kneeling before Christ that may well be a contemporary representation of Adeliza herself. Oh, cool. Do we have a picture of it? Uh, we do. Oh. <laughs> God, her hands are twice the size of her face. They're <laughs> the big hands. Uh she is identifiable as human in that she has two eyes and nose and a mouth but the gender and anything else is really quite hidden it's not mm. it's not a um document is it that one no we we're, we're still not quite in holbein territory i fear no. uh like matilda of scotland she founded a hospital for lepers and paupers st giles at wilton mm. And uh, she continued to support Henry's foundation at Reading after his death. So on the first anniversary of his death, she hosted a gathering of bishops and abbots, granting them a manor as well as 100 shillings per year from her queen hive revenues that she wanted to be used as uh, a lamp to burn perpetually at Henry's tomb. Oh, that's nice. Did it? I mean, when did it stop, I guess? (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure when it stopped. Probably not that long. Uh, and in terms of the development of queenship, Adelise is the first example we have of a queen receiving uh, what's called queen's gold. So this is a tax of an extra 10% on any fine to the crown over 10 marks, and also a tax paid uh, by Jews. Now this will become an important part of the income of medieval queen's consort later on, and while Eleanor of Aquitaine is the first to have a formal standardised process for queen's gold, Adelise is the first one to actually receive it in 1129. Oh, right. So she's starting to get her own income from being a queen rather than being yeah. gifted stuff. Yeah, exactly. Right. Cool. Overall, however, her time as queen is perhaps a little bit disappointing. Uh, the Anglo-Norman period we've been seeing is actually something of a high point for a powerful queen's consort. 
Yeah. Uh, but Annalisa, I'm afraid, is rather the exception to the rule. Uh. So Matilda of Scotland issued 31 writs in her own name uh, during her marriage to Henry, whilst Adeliza issues only one in her own name and witnesses just 13. And this is despite the fact she's constantly in Henry's presence. Oh, yeah. But I... Yeah. I can I can imagine that dynamic quite easily, though, with Henry. Mm. But it's nice that she keeps his name alive after he dies. Yeah. And it's she probably doesn't have much opportunity to do any real governance. Henry's uh, kingship has been described as administrative kingship, so it's quite a well-oiled machine by the time that she comes to England. Offices of state are a bit more clearly defined. Matilda of Scotland being part of the process of creating it and had a personal role, but the office of Queen is not yet formalised as a guaranteed major player. It's still quite dependent on personality and circumstance. Yeah, and she is too young to take advantage of that. Too young, and she's there to produce children, so she's not given that sort of opportunity. And uh, apparently even some of her patronage is not quite so impressive. She made no significant religious foundation of her own. Um, so we see Matilda Flanders had Holy Trinity at Khan. Matilda of Scotland had Holy Trinity at Oldgate, but we don't have anything like that for Adeliza. Mm, yeah. And in terms of that lost history song that she commissioned, Geoffrey mm. uh, Guimar, who's a chronicler and philosopher, um, wrote that apparently it was pretty boring. <laughs> no way. So he said, if I had chosen to have written of King Henry, I had a thousand things to say which the troubadour knew naught about. Neither had he written, nor was the Louvain Queen herself in possession of them. (laughs) To quote Geoffrey of Guymore. So, you know, we've got we've got some stuff there. We've got a bit of cultural patronage, some lovely needlework, crocodile tears. A boring history song. Money. Yeah. I see your point from before now about your worry about giving the other people the Rex Factor because uh, you keep having to expect more and more and more. Um, (laughs) But when they don't deliver more and more and more, it is very disappointing. Yeah. And particularly, it's it's a funny thing because in one sense, this is the category where she does... You know, she does have a bit more stuff than certainly in Scandal and, you know, it's certainly comparable to Battliness, if not a bit better. But equally, this is perhaps the one factor where she would have had an opportunity to do more. Maybe not in terms of governance and queenship, but in terms of the patronage and all that sort of stuff. She could have got a bit more stuck in, maybe. She could have done a bit more. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, But, I mean, it's... It's chugging along, isn't it? It, it? This is the sort of um, subjectivity you'd expect uh, from someone who's got doing so much else other good stuff um, mm. or constantly popping up babies. Uh, and you go in, yeah, subjectivity's not bad. There's all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. But on its own, to... Oh, I'm, I'm thinking. I think I was a bit, a bit better than that. I'm gonna. I think it's less than half, but I'm thinking maybe a four and a half. I'm gonna give her. Because as I say, as you said, it is sort of chugging along. It is doing the sorts of things you'd expect her to be doing. It's you know, it's 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 a bit less than your bog standard good subjectivity, but it's not a long way down from it. I'd say so. I don't think it's too bad. It's just not great. Yeah. Uh, so four and a half for me, two from you, so that is six and a half for subjectivity. So the same as what she got for battliness. 
Oh, right. Longevity. So Adeliza was Queen of England from the 24th of January 1121 to the 1st of December 1135. Well, that's longer than I thought. Mm, so that's a reign of 14.83 years. Oh, you see, it makes my score for subjectivity seem better then. Uh, so that equates to a score of 9.5 out of 20 for longevity, which is the 32nd best overall. Ah. That's not good, is it? It's not so great. But that's our highest score thus far. Dynasty, not the program. Well, sadly, of course, by Henry I, she does not have any children. No. This gives her a score of 0 out of 20. Oh, dear. It's not looking good. Mm. But it's unfortunate because, as I said, she could have children. Indeed, she has an impressive seven children with William Daubeny. Whoa. So you given the fact that she's been married to Henry for nearly 15 years, no children. What, what was that about, really? And then That's... so p- presumably she must be, you know, she's well into her 30s by the time she actually has some children. So she might maybe even into her 40s by the time the last ones are. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Out. Well, that's a conundrum, isn't it? Well, I mean, sadly, she gets... It does still have to be a score of zero, even though she is actually, uh, through these children, uh, the ancestress to two Tudor consorts, Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard. No way! Yeah. All comes around, doesn't it? So, we put all of that together, and Adeliza of Louvain gets a total score of 22.5. Where's that? That is the 15th best overall so far out of 20. Oh, I thought it might have even been worse than that. But it's not all about the score, Ali. No. Does she have that certain something, that great achievement, that lasting legacy, the star quality that we call... Rex Factor! No. Well, I mean, hang on, before you jump in there, two Rex Facts for you. Yeah. The only Anglo-Norman consort not to be called Matilda. Yeah. And the only Anglo-Norman consort to survive her husband. Is she also the only Anglo-Norman consort not to have children? Three Rex facts. Oh, yes. Is that the first Rex fact I've ever made? It could be. That in itself is a Rex fact. That's four Rex facts. (laughs) Oh, wow. Well, this has changed around dramatically. Suddenly, right it's a end. whole different ballpark. Whew! Do you know what that means? It's got to be a no for Adelisa. Yes, a no. Yeah, yeah. Seem, even by contemporaries, she seems to have been forgotten, sadly. She doesn't yeah. really have any legacy on impact or on English history or queenship. No, no. I mean, I, it says a lot that... When now I'm not claiming to be an expert in uh, what are they called? Queens, um, regnants? No, what are they? Consorts, consorts, consorts. Um, but I had no idea she existed. When I was texting you earlier today, I said, "So who is it this time? Uh, uh, who is it?" I suggested. No, I was thinking it was uh, Stephen's wife. Oh yes, yes. And then what? Matilda's husband. <laughs> um, and it took two or three guesses before um, it came around to this because she just doesn't doesn't have any she doesn't have any memory in popular opinion, which mm. you know doesn't make a difference. It should it should uh, as we always say that's the point of this. Yeah, but you know it's for good reason here. 
It's also perhaps a salutary lesson in, you know, we've seen in some ways the advance, you know, with Matilda of Flanders, with Matilda of Scotland, two very powerful uh, queen consorts. And you sort of, it almost feels like you think, oh, we're really moving forward now. There's an appreciation that women can be, uh, you know, rulers and can have the share in power. You know, there is an advance. But with Adeliza, we see that there's still a huge amount in which they are reduced to traditional roles and childbearing. And the fact mm. that she doesn't have any children is really used against her by contemporaries and in terms of power and in terms of memory because she doesn't produce children she's sort of deemed insignificant yeah yeah maybe actually it knocked the idea of queenship back on the other hand i suppose a nice thought for adelisa as i said her second uh marriage does seem to be a happy one she does have seven children and you know she got to be queen of england for 15 years you know maybe she had an all right time yeah Maybe it's nicer having a quieter time of it. Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, that would be my whole thing. You've just got to bear Rex Factor in mind when you're doing some queening. Yeah, you've got to do something. Mm. Correspondence Corner. So let us know what you think about Adeliza of Louvain. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, where we are at Rex Factor Pod. Uh, like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page and email us at rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com. And uh, remember to send in your hashtag consort cards to provide an episode image for Adelisa of Levan to make up for the lack of Heritage Limited playing cards for the consort. Yes, please. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever podcast provider you use, and subscribe. Now, we are a free podcast, but if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a one-off donation via PayPal, or you can donate on a monthly basis and join the Privy Council to get bonus content. Yes, and what content it is. Indeed. And we have some new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Bryn Fraker, Zoe Greenstein, W. Stomlin, Mary Julio, Erin Reinholtz, W.A. Stewart, Melanie Shue, V. Brown, F.S.B. Waters, J.G. Hargrove, Grace Heiderscheidt, Tanya Tate, Tom Freight. Ivor Malema, Lady of Cornwall, Kate Levasseur, Imander, and Kane. No, <laughs> and Kent. Kent. Yes. Now Kent's membership is actually a birthday gift from Lindsay, who has this message for him. Oh. Happiest of birthdays to my BFF amigo forever, Kent. Hope to see you once quarantine is over. Love your first best friend, Lindsay. Oh, that's sweet. Uh, we've had some other messages from Privy Councillors who've uh, joined the fold over recent months. Stephen uh, Kuehl says, Friend and fellow patron Amy Williams got me into listening. We spent many hours in Oxford discussing favourite monarchs. After moving to Zurich, I tried to keep up with UK news, but it's so depressing that I've ditched the news in favour of old Rex Factor episodes. Hey. When asked about UK events, all I have is disbelief that Harold Godwinson could march around England at such great speed. <laughs> No, no, that still gets me, that one. It's lovely to think that that, uh, that would be the news, wouldn't it, the headlines? Yeah. Harold dashes up north, and then two days later, what? <laughs> Stop press, he's, he's back down in he's battle. He's back. Yeah. Um, Edgar the Peaceable, no Rex Factor. Henry the Seventh, yes Rex Factor. Uh, Maverick Mitchie says that he's been on the fence uh, for months now on whether or not to become a member of the Privy Council, but ever since catching up on the podcast, I've had withdrawals and decided to sign up in order to access all those special episodes. Hey. Can't wait to learn about William the Marshal. 
Marshall, William the Marshall. And Francesca Britton says, this podcast has really been helping get through my masters. It's a nice little break to catch up on, even though I'm only at Malcolm III. My personal favourites are the Saxons. The fact that we don't know so much about them is... uh, uh, The fact we don't know so much about them is what makes them more interesting. Keep up the great Mm. work. And speaking of Malcolm III, Christopher Graham has been in touch to give him credit for his very Rexy lineage. Oh, yeah? I just thought you'd like to point out to Ali that the current period in history you are covering might be the most Rex Factor winner-heavy period of all time, and surprisingly it all began with Malcolm III of Scotland. So we've got Malcolm III, he got the Rex Factor of Scotland, two of his children, David I and Matilda of Scotland, his son-in-law, Henry I, his granddaughter in a special episode, Empress Matilda, his great-grandson, Henry II, and his great-great-grandson, Richard the Lionheart. I think you'll agree this is an incredibly impressive and unprecedented streak. Um, so every generation from Malcolm III to great-great-grandson Richard the Lionheart has a Rex Factor winner in it. Wow, that is, that is, that is pretty impressive, isn't it? Yeah, good spot. Hmm. And finally, we have a consort limerick from Louise Brimacombe. Yes! Uh, and this one is on Elfgiva of Northampton, the sort of first wife but not quite consort for Canute. Elfgiva surpassed all expectations in spite of some fearsome relations. She spent half her life as a second-best wife, yet was regent of two different nations. <laughs> That's lovely. <laughs> that does help. <laughs> it really does, because I started... When you said that, I started... I was thinking, oh, gosh, which one's she? And by the end, I think, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I've just got to get them uh, all printed off for you. Just have them around you. Yeah. Yeah, I'll just pin them up around the house. And before you know it, I'll be a, a, some sort of history man. Finally, someone teaching me about the kings and queens of England <laughs> after all these years. <laughs> Graham has been talking and talking and talking. <laughs> Honestly, just give him a riddle. What are they called? Limerick. Limerick. <laughs> Oh, imagine if it was just all uh, consort riddles. No, that's like the opposite, isn't it, of a, a limerick? <laughs> the anti-limerick. Uh, anyway, that's it for Adeliza of Levan. Next time we'll be back on familiar. Uh, we'll be back on familiar territory with another Matilda. Oh, good, 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 good. So, this on, which one is this? So the next one we're doing is Matilda of Boulogne, who is the queen consort of King Stephen. Okay. Okay, that's fine. But he's confusingly not Matilda. He is not Matilda indeed. But he's married to someone called Matilda, but not that Matilda. Yes. It'd be weird if they were married. Indeed. It's going to be a confusing episode. (laughs) All right, well, at least I know I'm on solid ground when I try and fish for the name. Yeah, if you just say Matilda, you will be correct. Yeah. Anyway, so next time Matilda of Boulogne. But for now, it's goodbye for me. Cheerio.